It's Thursday, July 7th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio and Supernova, Simon Erickson. Happy Thursday. Hey, happy Thursday. Happy belated Fourth of July, too, Chris. Yes, yes. And now we are getting the sunshine and warm weather that we didn't really get on July 4th. It was raining during the parade. Yeah. Very unpatriotic. Yeah. <laughs> You're blaming Mother Nature for, for lack of patriotism? Not a fan of America on the 4th. Apparently not. Uh, we're going to get to some retail news. We're going to do a little bit more of uh, earnings preview. But let's start with the deal of the day, and it is in the food industry. Danon, the French conglomerate, is buying White Wave Foods, which is the maker of soy and almond milk, in a $10 billion deal that is going to double the size of Danon's business in the U.S. And Simon, this is one of those deals where you look at both stocks, they're both up. Obviously, White Wave Foods up around 18 19%. That's the premium that's being paid. But shares of Danon up. Shareholders seem excited. Should they be? Uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, I think that you, you hit it right there when you said that it's doubling Danon's US presence. Danon's a French company. And White Wave already has distribution into multiple different grocery stores and locations. So you can get this at CVS, at Harris Teeter, at um, Giant, at Safeway, basically any any grocery store. The distribution's already built out. The and, Silk brand, right? right. So, so you've got Silk almond milk, you've got So Delicious dairy free ice cream, a bunch of different organic brands too, but mostly on the non dairy, um, you know, uh, liquid side of, of things here. But again, you know, this is kind of buying their way into growth. The United States is obviously a very attractive market for Danon, and the demand for organic and lactose-free um, milk and stuff like this is very high. Uh, the National Institute of Health just said that they think that nearly 65% of the world's population is lactose intolerant after infancy. So it's a huge market for out there. It's not. It's not Wait, a serious condition. Sixty-five percent in some condition. Yes. Not. Not that it's so extreme that you can't drink milk or you get sick, but. Two thirds of the world's population is technically lactose intolerant. I'm gonna I'm gonna mull that over while I'm having a milkshake later today. <laughs> On that note, the uh, the deal was fully financed with debt, and I think that this is another sign that banks are very comfortable with the predictability of food companies. It's kind of a recurring consumer staple, and uh, this is just uh, another play that's in kind of a a faster-growing market than traditional groceries. This uh, was recommended in our stock advisor service. Uh, White Wave shareholders should be happy. This is is, um, working out well for them. This is, however, I mean, we've seen some deals recently where the buyout price is pretty significant, 50% or higher. This is only, as I said, like a 19, 20% premium. White Wave strikes me as a good company that is kind of pricey when you look at the stock. Yeah, 20 times EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So that's a pricey multiple to pay for a food company, in my opinion. I think that the play from for Danon in this, who is the acquiring company, is that they saw that White Wave has got about a about a nine percent operating margin today. I'm sure nothing nothing incredibly sexy, but that's that's solid. But twenty six percent of sales is going into sales and marketing expenses, and I think the play for them is they're a larger, more leveraged global company. I think they're going to look on getting the percentage of sales as a percentage of revenue down and making this a higher operating margin company over time in a field that's fast growing. So I think for them it would make sense. The the, the multiple does look a little pricey in my opinion, but I think there is room to grow into it. You and I were talking earlier this morning, and and one of the things I mentioned is once again, we have. 
we have a merger or not a merger. We have an acquisition in the news, and it is not in the energy industry. Right? Is what's happening there? I'm and I'm not an energy industry expert, so I'm you know I'm just Joe average investor. But it's basically been about 18 months of me in my Joe average investor way, just sort of looking at the energy industry and saying, shouldn't there be more M&A going on here? Yeah, well, that's where everything's cheap, right? I mean, you're getting good deals if you're buying anything in the energy industry right now. It's just a matter of, I guess, two things. How long do you want to wait for oil prices to turn around? How much risk do you want to take? I mean, and anybody that's getting bought up right now in the energy industry has to have a strong balance sheet to be able to ride out this cyclicality. If you don't, you're taking a huge amount of risk at exactly the wrong time to be taking a risk. So maybe that's one of the reasons you don't see more deals right now. Same store sales for Costco were flat in the month of June, but that was actually better than Wall Street analysts were expecting, and shares of Costco up about 4% this morning. A nice reminder that uh, Costco sells gas, and that does factor into their same store sales. Uh, gas continues to be cheap in the states. I'm wondering though if that is why we're seeing the optimism. I think so. Um, again, Costco really, you know, they're not really making money off of marking up the, the prices of everything. It's a warehouse concept. Yeah. So low gas prices, um, in theory, should drive more traffic, literally, to the store um, where they're filling up. And then, of course, that's more memberships for the company itself. The more important metric, rather than just same-store sales growth for Costco, is the number of memberships they have, and then also the number, or I'm sorry, the uh, the retention rate of those memberships. And we saw last quarter, they've still got a 91% retention rate uh, for that membership model, which is where they're deriving the majority of that operating profit. So, I think that that's where the optimism is coming from. 91%. My God. I, I mean, and we had Jim Sinegal when when he was still CEO, the longtime CEO at Costco. He was still CEO at the time. Uh, I think it was 2009 that he was here at uh, Full HQ. Did we I, bring him to the Sinegal Room? Uh, no, it was not named the Sinegal Room at that uh. point. We changed. I forget what it was called before, but we we changed it in in honor of him. But um, I remember uh, interviewing him in you know in in front of the company. And one of the things we talked about was the retention rate. And at that point, their retention rate was somewhere in the 80s. It was, I mean, still a staggering, like if you just think about any membership business, most businesses that have a membership would love to have a retention rate in the 80s. And you could just see it on Senegal's face that, yes, we're, I think at the time they were like maybe 85, 86%. He was like, yeah, we can do better. We can do, like, we're, we're, we're trying to do better. So that 91% is just, but now, of course, you, you got to figure, who is it, Craig Jelinek, who's the CEO yes. now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he's just like, all right, how do we get it to 93? And they've done everything <laughs> they can to get that retention rate as high as possible, right? They've, take, they've taken out every cost they possibly can to get the lowest prices for, for members when they're shopping there. And members are willing to pay, you know, fifty now fifty-five dollars a year for that membership uh, benefit. Wall Street also really loves this company, Chris. Um, it's very modelable. It's it's a slow-growing company. Um, you've got all the inputs between the number of members and the price they're paying and their retention rate. It's pretty easy to model stuff like that. And then they're taking cash and they're buying back shares, and then they're paying a rising dividend too. So I think that's one of the reasons you see. Um, 
what many would consider a, a boring company. It's not a tech, high-growth, sexy company, but it's still selling at a, a PE of about 30 times earnings today and about 20 times 2020's earnings. So, it's getting the premium from, from the street because I think that they really like that predictable, recurring revenue stream that Costco brings in. That's a good reminder that Wall Street analysts are, in part, just like individual investors in, in terms of if they're looking at a universe of companies, and in this case, the universe is retail. That's part, just like we talk about the sleep factor from time to time for analysts on Wall Street. They're like, you know what? I know what I'm getting over here. I know <laughs> it's much more predictable. I'm going to sleep better at night if if I'm modeling out this company. And, and you know, we we do use models in the Motley Fool, but I think that also there are some hidden risks in there too. It's easy to to just linearly increase, you know, the the um, the inputs you're putting from model year after year after year. But I still think there are some risks for Costco that that aren't addressed in maybe a lot of those expectations. Um, one, I, I don't have a clear answer yet if the warehouse concept is really catching on with millennials. Uh, in the age of, of you know, two-day shipping and Amazon Prime that's not getting into groceries and other stuff like that, do millennials want to drive out and, and go to a, a warehouse club, or do they just want to order it on the internet? That that answer still lingers, or I'm sorry, that question still lingers to be answered by Costco. And then secondly, how much international growth can you really get out of a concept like this? It works in the United States. Um, there are analogs to Costco in South America, like PriceSmart. Uh, really doesn't catch on in China, but is there still enough international growth to really um, validate the, the the kind of the, the more expensive multiples we're paying today? It will be interesting to see. Um, before we talk earnings, <clears throat> I just want to point out that we are now in week three of the Lululemon Mystery Board of Directors uh, member story uh, with Rotor Pitcher. And uh, still no real evidence that she exists. Um, and uh, the the most recent story I've seen uh, from Anders Kites, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Kites or Keats, who's the the, the reporter for the Street.com who first started writing about this, is that uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the data points they found about Rhoda Pitcher was that she was uh, an advisory board member. Uh, for an organization called Edu Curious, and uh, her name and bio has now disappeared from the Edu Curious website. Oh my! So uh, I, I feel I, I feel like I'm going full Nell Minow on this one. I'm I'm so fascinated by this story by the fact that no one really wants to go on the record about Rota Pitcher at all, including the Gates Foundation, which is which is also involved in in Edu Curious as well. I think. Um, yeah, we'll just we'll just see where this goes. Have you talked to Nell about this yet? I, I've traded emails with Nell okay. about this. Um, she, um, I think she's she's equally interested in it because um, one of the things that she and I are both sort of locking in on is the the lack of response from the company. Right, and it's just like no, no, no. You you actually don't get to do you don't get to clam up. Like that, you don't get to say no comment about your. So we'll, we'll see when the next proxy vote is, and we'll we'll see how that goes for Lululemon. I believe the only comment they have so far is that she's a valued board member. Right? Yes, that's the official statement. They put out a Lululemon written right statement that had one sentence about Ryder Pitcher. Yeah, again, it was basically like, no, 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 she's real. All right, worries me. Um, how Lululemon is allocating. Capital. I mean, <laughs> this well, is this is she's I believe on the compensation committee of the board of directors. Also, for she is. We can't even find her. Yeah, still. So yeah, you know, when you think about board members for the various companies that you're a shareholder of, 
uh, obviously you, you want to have a little bit of insight into who they are and how they're contributing and that sort of thing. But you, 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 I don't know. I always sort of take it for granted that the people actually exist, that they're, <laughs> that they're that they're not fictional, that they're not a ghost. But um, you know, now I've now I've learned that lesson. Earnings season kicks off next week. What are you looking at as we we head into this next quarter? Certainly, you look back over the last six months. the The start of 2016 was a roller coaster ride that was going straight down for about five or six weeks. We've we've recovered from that. As we head into the second half of 2016, is there an industry you're watching? Is there a company? Is there a question that you have? For this next earnings season, well, I mean, the market is hitting kind of near all-time highs, right? And it seems like there's a lot of um, high expectations in the market right now. And when we say the market, we we typically say the S and P 500, but the Nasdaq, which is more tech-heavy, has been really volatile for the last year. I mean, we've we've taken the good times and the bad times, um, and and it's been a, a kind of a tough a tough year for several growth investors. Uh, one company that I'm really looking at uh, in particular is Baidu. Uh, Baidu is the largest search engine uh, of of China. Uh, similar to how Google has has established dominance in the U.S., Baidu has done the same in China. But the company has been spending heavily, even amongst the the skepticism of growth companies that we've seen for, during the last year, to develop what they're calling an online to offline initiative. Uh, rather than users just going on and using Baidu to search for information, they're actually closing transactions using Baidu's platform as well. And if you're an advertising customer, that's the holy grail. You want to to get the sale, book the sale, and, and book the revenue from, from somebody that's going on the internet and looking for your stuff. So, Baidu is really pushing this hard for the last couple of years. They spent a ton of money to develop those relationships. And the stock has been selling off because of the skepticism of the investment. But last quarter, we saw over $2.5 billion US dollars of transactional volume. Of gross merchandise volume exchanged over Baidu's O2O platform, which is phenomenal. That's up 268% year over year, Chris. So it's working, it's starting to gain traction. And I think that's going to be one company and one group within this company in specific that I'm really going to be watching for the next earnings season. They report in the end of July here. End of July? End of July, yep. All right, well, we'll have you back and see how they do. B I D U. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.